You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. This series, we're talking about true historical crimes, which is a podcast and television genre that generates huge audiences. People are continually fascinated by these transgressive tales loaded with salacious details about everything that we are told we must not do. And I am talking about myself, too. I love a good investigation discovery or dateline binge. But sometimes the fascination with murder and the people that commit them glosses over the troubling, broader social and cultural forces behind the crime. Right. Take, for example, the cultural phenomenon sparked by the podcast Serial. For a lot of people, the story is just fascinating murder mystery. But when you really dig into the case, it's also a story about racial and religious prejudice. The serial producers did a good job dealing with this, but it was a more nuanced point than, um, say, for some listeners, it, it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Right. Today, we're talking about a very real murder that was committed by a very real woman who lived in Missouri in the 1850s. But while this murder had all the elements that make for a flashy and exciting true crime story, sex, rape, murder, dramatic courtroom scenes, it's a very different kind of true crime tale and must be understood within its historical context. So we're not going to spoon feed you salacious details. Instead, we're going to make you think pretty deeply about the culture that made this murder possible and may have, in fact, made it excusable. Today, we're talking about the case of Celia, a slave. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Right off the top, we want to acknowledge that all of what we're going to say here about Celia and her life comes from the work of a historian named Melton McLaurin, who taught history at the University of North Carolina Wilmington for decades. We're going to include a link for you to purchase this book in the show notes because um, it's a very slim book. It's a very quick read, but it's very powerful. And I honestly believe that everyone should read it. Yes. One other thing. Lately, there's been a powerful push to use the term enslaved rather than slave. This is because the word slave is a label, which makes it seem as though human beings can simply be categorized as possessions. Whereas enslaved makes it clear that in order for people to become possessions, they need to be actively enslaved by another person. We try to use enslaved wherever possible, but sometimes we will use the term slave because that's just what people in the 1850s said. Mm -hmm. 
In June 1855, a slave owner named Robert Newsom walked from his home out to the cabin occupied by his slave, a young 19- or 20-year-old woman named Celia. They had a conflict, and Celia killed Newsom. Panicked, Celia dragged the corpse to the fireplace of her cabin, lit a fire, and sat watch through the night, tending the flames while they slowly destroyed the body of her master. By the time light broke, nothing remained of Robert Newsom except ashes. That doesn't sound all that different from the kinds of stories you might hear on a modern true crime podcast. But this was not a straightforward story of a woman killing the man in her life. Instead, the murder of Robert Newsom was a flashpoint in the most serious and long-simmering conflict of the 19th century. Slavery, its expansion, and the sexual violence that lay at its heart. So let's explore how this crime came to occur. Sometime between 1819 and 1822, a young man named Robert Newsom moved his family, wife and two small children, from Virginia to Missouri. The move took place at almost the same moment that Missouri made the big transition from territory to state. As you might remember from your U.S. History 1 class way back when, this was the result of the 1820 Missouri Compromise, an attempt to keep the peace between the slaveholding states of the South and Northern states, which were either already free or in the process of ending slavery. In 1819, when the Missouri Territory applied for statehood, it touched off serious fears about the fragile balance between the sections. As it stood, there was an equal number of slave states to free, but Missouri wanted to enter as a slaveholding state. If Missouri was successful, it would mean that slave states would have the upper hand in Congress. Which they already did have the upper hand in the House of Representatives, but they would also have the upper hand in the Senate, Mm -hmm. um, which would sort of permanently skew things more even than they already were towards the South. Okay. In an attempt to solve the problem, New York Congressman James Talmadge tried to add an amendment to the statehood bill that would require Missouri to prohibit any additional slaves from entering the state and would require slaves born in the state to be freed by their 25th birthday. The amendment was eventually voted down, and Missouri entered as a slave state with the compromise that Maine, originally the northern reaches of Massachusetts, would enter as a free state to keep the balance. In addition, the compromise dictated that slavery could no longer expand north of the 3630 parallel, or what became known as the Missouri Compromise Line. Today, it's common for people to interpret the many failed compromises of the first half of the 19th century as good things. They were, after all, if you look at it in this way, attempts to avoid the tragedy of war. But that's not at all how it was interpreted at the time, certainly not by the most important political minds of the day. Thomas Jefferson wrote that, quote, It, like a firebell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I consider it the death knell of the Union. That's quite a statement coming from one of the founders of the Union. John Quincy Adams, a curmudgeonly adorable man, (laughs) uh, saw the controversy over the compromise as a, quote, mere preamble, a title page to a great tragic volume. To many Americans in the early 19th century, it was abundantly clear that this was not a smart way to avoid civil war. This was a clear indication that all the attempts in the Constitution to appease both non-slaveholding and slaveholding factions had failed and would continue to fail. This seemed like a very ominous precursor to much, much worse things. As Melton McLaurin writes, 
The compromise and the defeat of the Talmadge Amendment gave notice of the South's commitment to the permanence of slavery. Slavery, as the compromise asserted, was not merely a necessary evil, an institution that could be eliminated within a generation or two, or whose fate could be determined by a congressional majority. Rather, slavery was an institution fundamental to the existence of Southern society, a permanent part of the Southern way of life. So, in other words, the compromise made it very clear that slavery was not dying out, like some members of the founding generation had believed or had purported (laughs) to believe that it was going to eventually die out on its own, including Thomas Jefferson. But actually, um, this proves that, as we talked about in our Texas episode, that slavery was the cornerstone of Southern society. Uh, And side note here, someday... I feel like in every episode, we're like, someday we're going to have an episode on all of these things. But I would really like to have an episode about slavery in the Constitution. Absolutely. Um, I, I find that we were doing a constitutional series, right? Or we're doing the law. We're doing the law. Well, I can't go. remember what I'm doing. Oh. I can't remember what law I'm doing now. Well, listeners, we'll, we'll fit it in at some point. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll get around. Someday. That. Someday. Yeah. We can have a whole series just on con- the Constitution. I'm well, sure that you guys will really like that. Murder me. <laughs> Well, me and Sarah. Well, it'll be it'll yeah. be a me and Sarah. You guys um, can talk okay. about the British non-constitution, talk about the Magna Carta, and all that. Yeah, stuff. the Magna yeah. Carta is f- yeah. stupid. Can we Sorry, talk about the- <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> all right, 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 all right. But back to our story about Robert Newsom and Celia. In the early 19th century, the states of the Eastern Seaboard were filling up. Virginia, specifically, was first settled starting in 1607, and after two centuries, the population had increased so that good land was both becoming scarce and had become really, really expensive. Mm -hmm. For people like Robert Newsom, not completely impoverished, but certainly not landed aristocracy, um, they didn't really have any good shot at buying land, which made largely unsettled territories like Missouri really appealing. Uh, The land wasn't quite what it was in Virginia, not necessarily fit for huge tobacco plantations, for instance, but it was plentiful and affordable. Robert Newsom, by 1855, owned around 800 acres of land in Callaway County, Missouri, where he grew a variety of crops such as corn, wheat, rye, and oats, and he raised livestock. Newsom's wife died at some point after his move to Missouri, but he had Three children, Harry, Virginia, and Mary. His son, Harry, was in his... Harry and Mary. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yes, Harry, Virginia, and Mary. And it's funny, too, because he moved from Virginia with his daughter, Virginia. But anyway, his son, Harry, was in his 40s in 1855 and lived on an adjacent farm with his wife and children, as did Robert Newsom's grandson, David, also lived on an adjoining farm. His daughter, Virginia, was in her late 30s and was widowed, or at the very least, based on the evidence we have, not living with her husband. In 1855, Virginia had been living at home with her father for several years and was raising her children on the family farm. She had four children, James Coffey, who was 12, Thomas, 9, and Amelia, 6. I should say James Coffey was his name, not his, Coffey wasn't his last name. Their yeah. last name was Wayne Scott, but they referred to him as Coffey. Yeah, they, they called him Coffey, They right? called him yeah. Coffey, yeah, which is weird. Yeah. Another child, Billy, uh, poses a little bit of a mystery. He was born after Virginia had moved back in with her father without a husband, which, you know, not super unusual. No, um, not at all. But, you know, 
but but Possibly certainly scandalous. outside of the the yes. realm of you know what was technically acceptable yes. um odd bit of side note here billy slept in bed with his grandfather again not super unusual beds yep. were expensive and they didn't have a lot of them yep. but you know it's That's a little it's slept. a little weird anyway robert newsom's youngest daughter mary was 19 and also still lived at home now the weirder thing would have been if mary slept robert right that well would have been the weirder I, thing. that's my students when we read this and i don't know whether they just made this up mm-hmm. because of their the way that their brains think but they one of their explanations for this whole scenario of why the the daughters didn't intercede was that yes that there was a sexual relationship between robert newsom and his daughters that's why they all lived at home like compound which oh. is not not probably accurate at all but oh absolutely not so no. it would be it's normal for no. them all to live together absolutely but. yeah i want to live on a family compound i'm tired of this nuclear family stuff <laughs> i want to go home yeah <laughs> i need help <laughs> i don't blame you I feel the same <laughs> Uh, also living on the Newsom farm were nine enslaved people, five adult men, a small boy, plus Celia, and her two small children. And should we mention there that Robert Newsom was the father of those children? Yes. yes. It, at or, least it, one, yes. but probably both. Okay. Uh, Missouri, of course, had successfully entered the Union as a slave state, and the enslaved population had slowly grown over the 30 years that Newsom had lived there. But slavery in Missouri didn't look exactly the same as it did, say, in Virginia or the Deep South. In Missouri, farmers typically owned just a few slaves, and those slaves typically worked alongside farmers in their fields or at their other work, whether it be barrel or wheel making or running a shop in town. Over half of the white families in Callaway County owned at least one slave, but only 12% owned more than 10 slaves. Almost all slave owners owned between one and ten enslaved people. This does not mean that the farmers of Callaway County didn't rely on slave labor. Right. Or that slavery wasn't an incredibly important part of their culture. It was. They they just weren't wildly wealthy and mm-hmm. could not own dozens of slaves unless it was through natural population growth, i.e. children. Their slaves right? having children. Right. Uh, but even those one, two, three, or four slaves became critical to the successful run of farms like Robert Newsom's. Right. And we should interject here that 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 was actually the more common experience of the slaveholding South was smaller farms with one or two or three or four slaves, not those massive plantations that you see, say, in Gone with the Wind, where they have over 100 slaves or something. That was actually the minority of right. slaveholders. But because but because there were those massive plantations, it kind of skews the numbers. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that they didn't exist. They did. They just were the minority of of slaveholding situations. The male slaves on the Newsom farm were most certainly purchased for their labor potential. Newsom was running a large and productive farm, not a plantation, but still a large and productive farm. And he had no sons living at home to help him with the work. Remember, his his son and his grandson live on adjacent farms running their own sort of situations. The male slaves would have worked planting and harvesting, caring for livestock, and working on the day-to-day operations of the farm. And for a long time, that is all the slaves that Robert Newsom owned, all male, at least until 1850. It was at that point that Robert Newsom decided to purchase Celia, who was only 14 years old. Newsom never left a letter or a diary or anything like that 
that explicitly described why he purchased Celia. Of course, a strong young woman could be helpful around the farm, but he already had four adult men to do that work. What could a 14-year-old girl offer? Well, the answer lies in the fact that in 1850, Robert Newsom had been widowed for just over one year. His daughter, Virginia, ran the household as her mother had before her, so she would have been the symbolic female mistress, the hostess, the person who managed all the household affairs, received guests, things like that. The lady of the house. Exactly, yep. He did not have small children that needed a stepmother to raise them, so he didn't need kind of a a replacement mother, but Newsom still did not have a wife. So in other words, Robert Newsom needed sexual release. He saw in Celia an opportunity, a sexual release that would be entirely controllable, subservient, and who, if she bore children, would only add to his overall wealth and status by producing more slaves. Celia was purchased with the intent that she be a sex slave. And I just want to note here that, you know, I'm struggling here with language and we struggle. We're going to struggle throughout this episode with language. And I just want to be upfront about that. What Robert Newsom purchased Celia for was rape, right? He was raping her. He raped her from the day that he purchased her until the day that their relationship effectively ended by his death. Mm -hmm. However, he did not think of it as rape, right? He wasn't, he wouldn't have thought of himself as a rapist. So when I say that he needed sexual release or that he needed someone to have sex with, I'm saying that from his point of view. From Celia's point of view and from our point of view today, it was rape. This gets tricky really quickly. There are many people who interpret any sexual relationship between a white person and a black person during the age of slavery rape, and they have good reason. Um, and in a sense, this is this is right because there was always a power imbalance, a severe power imbalance, especially between enslaved people and whites, and even more especially between enslaved women and white men. But uh, it's also more complicated than that in some occasions. Scholar Annette Gordon-Reed has argued throughout her writings on the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings that it often wasn't quite as simple as a power imbalance making it categorizing all sex between a white man and an enslaved woman as rape. For instance, uh, Gordon Reed argues that Hemings may have felt a great number of things about Jefferson, and she might also have thought of her sexual relationship with him as a tool at her disposal. This was something that she could use, perhaps as leverage to get a better life, to get better accommodations, whatever. She could also have felt tenderness or love or ambivalence for for him or hatred for him and him for her, But we don't know. Mm -hmm. That doesn't excuse or negate the power imbalance or the fact that, for instance, Jefferson never freed Hemings, but it does add a significant nuance to that relationship. So just using Jefferson and Hemings as an example there, Mm -hmm. it's obviously not exactly analogous to the relationship between Newsom and Celia. Um, But it's just to show that we, we... that kind of blanketly calling labeling all of these sexual relationships rape actually flattens a lot of nuance. And and at Gordon Reed says that it flattens a lot of the human agency that black women, even in black enslaved women had in the situation. Yeah. I mean, I still don't think it, I still think that we should not forget the power uh, imbalance because Mm -hmm. 
the reason that a woman would want to leverage a relationship like that was because she had no power. Yeah, she that was the one tool at her so disposal. That was, right. She right. could use she could use sex as a way to benefit her life or her children's life. Right. 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 So it still so represents a power imbalance. Absolutely. Yeah. The power imbalance doesn't go away just because uh, they right. had. Because they're going to take this and run with it or have agency. In yeah. The, in yeah. The absolutely. Relationship. Yeah. So right. this is not this is not by any means a simple yeah. negotiation. And that's why Annette Gordon-Reed says it's actually too simple to say that every single one of these sexual interactions was rape because it's but flattening you can, I, all I that mean, I would, I would argue, though, you can still call it rape, but still give the woman agency mm. in, in the situation. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, this, this can, is such a tricky we point. We could, like, yeah. argue about this for hours. Yeah. <laughs> and and if you have thoughts on this, like, let us know, right? Yeah. Like, weigh in on, in our secret Facebook yeah, group. Super <laughs> Facebook group. Right, or send anyway. us an email or whatever. Um, this is certainly not everything there is to say on this topic. I just wanted to make sure that we raised it to, to acknowledge that this is extremely tricky. Yeah. All right. So what we know for certain is that that was not the situation between Robert Newsom and Celia. Um, so while with Hemings and Jefferson, we have a very, very uh, we have very, very little information about what the relationship was like, except for a few things recorded or stated by their sons. In Celia's case, we have trial transcripts from witnesses describing the relationship and describing things that Celia had told her. And of course, we have the evidence of the fact that Celia murdered Robert Newsom in the summer of 1855. Right. In 1850, Robert Newsom decided to travel to Audrain County to purchase the teenage Celia. On the way home, Newsom raped Celia. Rape was a constant threat and ever-present reality for virtually every female slave. We know this because nearly every narrative written by a female slave makes reference to that threat or the experience of rape. It was not unusual, and while what Robert Newsom did in purchasing a very young slave for the express reason of sexual conquest Concubinage. Concubinage? Yeah. Concubinage. Concubinage? No, concubinage. It's concubinage. Please say concubinage. Concubinage? <laughs> yeah, that's the way I want to say concubine. it. Concubine. Concubinage. Right? Mm-hmm. Can I say that better? Con- concubinage. That is not a thing. That's how you say it. No, it's not concubinage. It was... That's how British people say it. Well, we're not British people. <laughs> I'm an American. <laughs> It was not unusual, and while what Robert Newsom did in purchasing a very young slave for the express reason of sexual concubinage, or concubinage, as Marissa (laughs) says it, (laughs) was blatant, it was far from socially condemned. Right. This was part of the experience of being enslaved and part of the experience of enslaving. It was written in from the beginning. It was, as I say to my students, it was baked in. In 1662, as slavery started to become encoded into the law, the Virginia House of Burgesses passed a law that stated that children born to female slaves followed the status of their mother, meaning that any time an enslaved woman bore a child, that child was born a slave. This, of course, meant that slavery became cradle to grave. It was permanent. It also meant that there was incentive for slave masters to rape their female slaves. Every child born to their female slaves meant increased wealth. And it also solved a tricky problem with well, what to do with these children born of, of slave master and right. slave. Right? Because you don't want a bunch of free blacks. Free, yes, mm-hmm. right. 
And rape was one of the open secrets of slavery, as described by Mary Boykin Chestnut, one of the most famous diarists of the 19th century South. Quote, like the patriarchs of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and their concubines and the mulattoes one sees in every family exactly resemble the white children. And every lady tells you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everybody else's household. But those in her own, she seems to think drop from the clouds or pretends to think. End quote. You like, my, you like my Mary Boykin chestnut It was a there. very good impression. <laughs> That's one of the most, I mean, there are a lot of really famous things that come out of Mary Chestnut's diary, but that is probably the most frequently yeah. quoted. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't necessarily something that people talked openly about or bragged about or did in a way that drew attention, but it was something that everyone did and everyone knew took place. Mm-hmm. This isn't to say that every master was a rapist or every Southerner was a rapist. But every Southerner lived in a society that knew that rape was endemic and they did nothing to stop it. Right. It was also a society that believed that black women were naturally, biologically promiscuous. Black women were seen as overtly sexual and naturally fertile. White women often believed that enslaved women tempted and entrapped white men, luring them into sexual relationships, especially white women who felt trapped in loveless marriages while watching their husbands sneaking out to the slave cabins and little mixed race children who resembled their husbands proliferating, uh, you know, in their yards. At the same time, there was very little that white women could do. Southern masculinity centered on what historian Stephanie McCurry has called mastery, They were the masters of their worlds, not just masters of their slaves. Landed men commanded deference, and white women, children, social inferiors, and slaves all were expected to defer to the master. Even if a white woman wanted to stop a sexual assault or relationship, she had very little power to do so, and further, she would risk losing her own protected status within the household. So in 1850, Celia arrived at the Newsom farm. It seems clear that Newsom intended that Celia primarily serve as his sexual slave. She was referred to publicly as the cook, but it doesn't appear that she actually worked at that task. Newsom built her her own private cabin, constructed of brick, with its own large fireplace. This cabin would have been luxurious compared to a standard slave cabin, and indicates that Newsom treated Celia differently than his other slaves. Between 1850 and 1855, Celia bore two babies, most likely both fathered by Newsom, that were raised in this cabin. The cabin was just 50 yards behind the family home, so that Newsom need only step out the back door and take a few steps to visit his sex slave. And in Melton McLaurin's book, he actually even um, kind of counts it out that it only would take about 60 paces mm-hmm. to get from the house to the slave ca- the, Celia's cabin. I thought it was like 20. It was really close. Yeah. He says it was 60 paces, okay. but okay. it was like five. Oh, yeah, 50 yards, it says here. Okay. Celia's life was very much at Robert Newsom's whim. This, of course, was true for all slaves, but particularly for a female slave being used for sex. While other slaves often could construct their own private relationships, Celia belonged to Newsom even in the most intimate sense. He did not want to share her sexually or emotionally with another person. So even while he built her this very nice cabin, it was really not an act of kindness. It was an attempt to keep her isolated and to mark her as his own. But Celia still managed to make a connection with George, one of the enslaved men on Newsom's farm. 
From what we know, it sounds like they struck up a relationship in 1854, and by early 1855, George was spending the night at the cabin with Celia. We don't know whether he was only sleeping the night or living in the cabin with her or whether Newsom was aware that he was doing this, but it seems very likely that he did not know. During this time, Newsom was still making regular visits to the cabin to rape Celia, and it doesn't seem likely, given the efforts that he took to isolate her in this cabin, that he would be very supportive or even tolerant of her having a relationship with other men. We also know that in the winter or very early spring of 1855, Celia became pregnant a third time. This time, it was unclear who the father was, Robert Newsom or George. This added a significant new strain to the already fraught triad. According to statements given at Celia's trial, it's clear that George was not happy about Newsom's continued sexual assault of Celia, and the pregnancy, which may have been his, made him even more angry. George was made powerless by Celia's abuse. He had to stand by and figuratively watch as Celia was raped, perhaps even to stand by and watch as Celia bore another of Newsom's children. Again, this was a typical right. experience of slavery. Mm -hmm. This was a serious blow to George's sense of manhood. He could do nothing to protect this woman, who he likely considered his wife. He couldn't confront Newsom. That would certainly have resulted in torture or potentially even his death. So instead, George did the one thing he could do, confronted Celia. He demanded that she quit the old man or George would leave her. Now, it's not at all clear what George expected Celia to right, do. Right. That, that was always my thing with this yeah. story. Like, this why is did a really he tell her part. this? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, she couldn't very well tell Newsom to stop or fight back the next time he tried to rape her without risking her own life. She couldn't claim a marriage between herself and George because slaves could not legally marry. Even if they could, it wouldn't interfere with Newsom's claim to her body. It's important to point out, too, George did not offer to help Celia in this relationship. He didn't say, hey, let's try to run away together. I mean, literally, like, what could she do? So yeah. he really puts her in a bad place yeah, in, yeah, this, yeah. And, in this situation. And that's really the catalyst for what happens next is, is George's ultimatum is what kind of pushes her over the edge here. Celia went to the two people on the farm who she thought might be able to help her. Newsom's two grown daughters, Virginia and Mary. She tried to explain that the pregnancy was difficult and that she was sick, asking them to intercede with their father to stop coming to her for sex while she was in this condition. At some point, we know that she also stated that if he kept coming to her, Celia would have to hurt him. We don't really know how Virginia and Mary reacted to this. Celia's plea would have unmasked the open secret of the sexual abuse taking place on the farm and taking place on many farms in the slaveholding South. This also placed the two daughters in a quandary. As unmarried young women, they were entirely economically reliant on their father. Further, they were socially and culturally reliant on their father and conditioned to be submissive and deferential to him. Finally, sex was really the domain of men. The girls would be risking their honor to confront their father about his sexual proclivities. We also need to consider the possibility that the daughters utterly dismissed Celia's protests for racist reasons. Almost all white women in the slaveholding South supported the institution of slavery and shared equally in the racist thinking that made it possible. They may very well have believed that Celia was manipulating their father into sex, that it was her fault, and then using the resulting pregnancy as a way to get lighter duty on the farm. 
Finally, we also have to remember that many white women enjoyed the protected status that they had within the slave system, which placed white men as the master of the entire household. Confronting their father would mean damaging their position of privilege. So what was Celia to do? Well, we know that at some point, just before or on June 23rd, 1855, she went directly to Newsom and begged him to leave her alone, claiming sickness rather than George as the reason. We don't know what Newsom said, and we don't know what he felt. To quote Milton McLaurin here, What he thought of or felt for her, whether he regarded her as a person or experienced even an occasional stirring of compassion for her, we cannot know. It is possible that he felt all of these things, or none. His past behavior towards Celia, however, unequivocally proclaimed that whatever he felt for Celia, as her master, he considered sexual relations with her his privilege. So what we do know is that perhaps to prove that he could do with her what he wanted, he responded to her plea by telling her that um, he would come to her cabin that very night to have sex with her. Celia was now more trapped than ever. If she did not stop Newsom, George, who she likely loved, would leave her. She would be completely and utterly isolated without anyone to relieve terror or trauma of repeated rape and childbirth. At some point, she pointedly warned her master, If you come to me again demanding sex, I will hurt you. On the night of June 23rd at 10 p.m., after the rest of the family had gone to sleep, Robert Newsom made the 50-yard journey from the back door of the family home to Celia's cabin. We don't know exactly what happened, but most likely Newsom tried to initiate sex. We know that the two talked, probably argued. Then Newsom backed Celia into a corner, insisting that she allow him to rape her. Celia reached behind her, seized a large stick that she used as a fireplace poker, raised it, and struck Newsom hard on the head. He started to fall, stunned, but not dead. Seeing him wounded and defenseless, Celia raised the stick again and smashed it into Newsom's skull, this time killing the old man. Celia knew immediately that if Newsom was discovered, she would be executed. There really was no chance of explaining the situation, and even if she did, a slave killing her master was inexcusable. She could not very well drag him out of the cabin without being discovered or leaving evidence. She sat by the body of her rapist for an hour, thinking about her options. That gives me the shivers, thinking... Just thinking of that image, yeah, you know, figuring out what she's going to do next, sitting next to the body of her rapist. Finally, she built a roaring fire in the fine, large fireplace Newsom had built for her, folded the body up as best she could, and shoved him in. She sat by the flames all night, pushing the body around to ensure it was entirely consumed by the flames and crushing bones into ash. Some of the very large bones would not disintegrate, so she gathered them up and hid them beneath a foreboard. In the morning, Newsom's absence was immediately noted by his family. Again, a reminder, he slept with his grandson, Billy. So when Billy woke up and his grandfather was still was not there, it was immediately noted. While the daughters and grandchildren tried to determine where Newsom had gone, Celia turned her attention to the large heaps of ashes in her fireplace. She found Robert Newsom's 12-year-old grandson, Coffee and told him that she would give him a treat if he came into her cabin and cleaned the ashes out of her fireplace. And Melton McLaurin weaves this very powerful scene in the book um, where he writes, quote, 
stooped over the hearth within the confines of Celia's small cabin, Coffee Wainscott inevitably would have inhaled the remains of his grandfather, would have breathed his grandfather's ashes deep into his lungs. Mm -hmm. Now, this wasn't a coincidence, right? This wasn't Celia just looking for any old person to help her or or anything like that. Celia would absolutely have understood what she was asking Coffee to do. And I think this is evidence that Celia saw this act as a kind of vengeance. So it's it's <laughs> the most it, to me that's the most powerful yeah. part and, in the book is and, her and kind of standing by watching. The writing in this book is so good. Like yeah. you gotta get it. You gotta buy it. Yeah. Or, or or get it at the library. Right. Or something. I mean yeah. you can get it on Amazon for like a penny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like okay. Read it. The family was immediately concerned that something had happened to Newsom and seemed to quickly believe that whatever it had, uh, whatever it had been, um, was foul play. Initially, the family suspected that George might have something to do with the disappearance. This is further evidence that the family knew that George, Celia, and Newsom were in conflict. William Powell, Newsom's neighbor, singled George out for questioning. This placed George in his own quandary. He would be likely suspect, and it didn't take much evidence to convict a slave of murder. But if he flipped and revealed that he suspected Celia, he would be condemning her for something that he effectively asked or forced her to do. We don't know exactly whether George had spoken to Celia that morning, so we're not sure if he knew for a fact that Celia had committed the act. But it certainly would have been in the forefront of his mind that Celia was involved given her relationship with Newsom and George's ultimatum. Mm -hmm. Either way, George told Powell that Newsom's last walking had been from the house to Celia's cabin. Suspicion immediately fell on 19-year-old Celia. It's really wild also to think that she was a teenager. For yeah. all of this, she was a teenager. Yeah. It's just, ugh. And she was she was quite petite. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only one or two pictures of her mm -hmm. that I've seen on the book, but... Um, she was little. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's just uh, imagining her folding up yeah. his body and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. putting it into the fire. Right. Probably because she understood she couldn't realistically escape, Celia made no effort to hide or run away. Despite Powell's intense questioning, Celia initially denied having anything to do with the disappearance. Remember, at this point, they don't actually know that the man is dead. When Celia refused to confess, Powell moved to threats. He told her that her children would be taken away from her, a threat that honestly probably didn't terrify Celia, in part because this was part and parcel of the nature of slavery. It, it sort of came with the territory. And in part because Celia knew that if she did confess, her children would be taken away anyway. Then Powell threatened Celia with torture, telling her, quote, he had a rope provided for her if she did not tell. Ugh. Celia refused to give in, but after continued questioning, Celia began to break down. First, she acknowledged that Newsom had come to her cabin and insisted that Celia have sex with him. Then she admitted to hitting him with a stick, but tried to frame it as if he was outside the window of the cabin trying to get in and then suggesting that he had then stumbled off. But finally, Celia broke down. She had no one left. George had left her. She could not rely on help from Newsom's daughters. And with her and her children's life and health at stake, she gave in and confessed to murdering Robert Newsom and disposing of his body. Powell brought in Newsom's son and grandson, who then began the search for Robert Newsom's body. They readily found the ashes and bone fragments. Virginia Newsom gathered the bone fragments into a box, which she kept in her bedroom, along with other items found in the ashes, metal buckles, buttons, and a knife handle. 
The trial of the state of Missouri versus Celia, a slave, began in the fall of 1855. Celia was granted a court-appointed attorney named John Jameson, a highly respected member of the community, former congressman, and himself a slaveholder. Jameson was considered a good man, a quote-unquote good slaveholder. Mm -hmm. And we say that with, like, immense eye-rolling, right? Yeah, Middle of the road in his politics, someone who could give Celia a fair effort. All of the jurors were white men from the county, less than half-owned slaves, and were generally fairly poor farmers. One thing that is fairly remarkable, at least to us, neither of who are real experts in the field of slavery and the justice system, Mm -hmm. um, is that Celia's lawyer did make an effort to give her a good defense. He probed witnesses about Celia's ill health, asked them about Robert about how Robert Newsom snuck into uh, from his bed at night to go to Celia's cabin, and even questioned the legality of Powell's questioning and the circumstances under which Celia confessed. He tried to raise doubt over whether it was possible that Celia actually destroyed the body in the fire in the time available, and even encouraged a witness to describe Celia's hitting Newsom as an act of self-defense. But of course, the effect was limited. Jameson was hesitant to push too hard when it came to the sex abuse, being careful to remain within the bounds of propriety so as not to alienate the jury. So I'm assuming meaning speaking in coded language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he wanted to raise that as an issue, but he also didn't want to be like rape, rape, rapey, rape, rape, because right. some of the members of the jury because were the themselves slaveholders. Would, would faint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the trial ended, what remained was to give the jury instructions. This is essentially when the judge tells the jury what they were to base their decisions on. The defense, led by John Jameson, did not allege that Celia did not commit the crime, but rather that Celia had the right to defend herself from rape and attack. In other words, they tried to argue that Newsom's death was justifiable homicide. The prosecution, on the other hand, suggested that regardless of motive, Celia had no right to kill her master. However, it was ultimately up to the judge which of these instructions was given to the jury. Judge William Hall delivered all of the prosecution's instructions, but chose not to give the jury the instructions from the defense that centered on the issue of motive. Instead, he only read to them the instructions that focused on reasonable doubt and the legality of her confession, nothing regarding her rape or the justifiability of Newsom's murder was ever uttered to the jury. So why, right? Why didn't he read the defense's justification or the the defense's instructions to the jury um, because this offered Celia a humanity that was that that flew in the face of what slavery was based on right um there was no such thing legally there was no such thing as rape of a black woman it did not exist in the law black women were sexually available at all times and people believed that they were biologically built to be sexually sexually available saying that rape legitimated murder was extremely dangerous this would mean that slaves like celia all over missouri And all over the larger South could justifiably murder their rapist masters and then be exonerated. As McLaurin writes, quote, acceptance of the defense's argument that slave women were protected by law from sexual exploitation by white men, including their masters, would have granted slave women legal equality with white women in an area of social activity that more than any other symbolized class relationships within the South's slaveholding society. 
In a greater sense, Jameson's argument amounted to a suggestion that slaves were to be treated under the general Missouri law, not just the slave codes designed to control enslaved people. In plain English, that would mean simply that slaves have human rights. This was a serious threat to the institution of slavery. In order for slavery to survive, it required the inhumanity of those who were enslaved. Acknowledging that slaves have the right to defend their bodies, that they had the right to dignity, was an acknowledgement that slavery was, in fact, the ownership of truly human beings. And also undermined the concept of mastery. Remember that the Southern gender and class hierarchy relied on the idea that white landed men were the masters of their worlds, not only caring for those within their households, expanded to include all, include all those who fell under their social and economic power, but also protecting them. If enslaved women needed the power of the law to protect them from sexual assault, it suggested that their masters failed in one of their fundamental tasks as men. And if an enslaved woman needed that added protection, then perhaps white women also needed that protection. Mm -hmm. And if white men could not protect their women, then they were no men at all. Mm -hmm. So essentially it tumbles the entire right. system that the South is based on. Right, right, right. Isn't it interesting how somehow it always comes back to masculinity and its fragility? Uh, men. Okay. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even <laughs> go there right now. The end result of the instructions delivered to the jury was that the 12 men really could not acquit Celia. They didn't even have that option. They could not consider the fact that she might have killed Newsom in self-defense, and they could not consider her years and years and years of rape. Faced with only reasonable doubt and the legality of her confession, the jury had little choice but to convict. Judge William Hall upheld the jury's decision and days later condemned Celia to hang in mid-November. Celia might have had a stay of execution. It was illegal, for example, to execute a pregnant woman, but it seems that Celia was no longer pregnant by mid-November. At some point, the date is not known, whether it was before or after the trial, but Celia delivered a stillborn baby. She had no way of postponing her execution date except for an appeal to the Missouri Supreme Court. It's just Horror added on horror added on horror. So she took matters into her own hands. On November 11th, Celia escaped, aided by someone from outside the jail. Dun, dun, dun. The evidence suggests that this outside aid came from a group of concerned Callaway County citizens, maybe even including Celia's own attorney. Evidence for this comes from Celia's attorneys, who wrote a letter to the Missouri Supreme Court explaining that Celia had escaped, aided by, quote unquote, someone, someone. <laughs> and that the crime, the result of extreme and inexcusable sexual abuse at the hands of her cruel master, was dividing the white community. I, I just want to interrupt you. I think that's fascinating, first of all, that there would be concerned citizens in Callaway County concerned about this enslaved woman and, mm -hmm. and her fate. Right. That's amazing. But also that they knew that the jury, the jury hadn't been able to consider the sexual allegations, right? Right. So they wrote this public letter. Right. So that, so everybody, that everybody knows. Would know. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's one of the reasons why this case is so important, right? Because it, it wasn't just an open and shut case. Like, mm -hmm. like people had real feelings about it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, or I shouldn't say, I mean... It sounds so flippant because, oh, white people cared. Mm -hmm. Therefore, right, exactly. Therefore, it became a thing. Yeah. I guess that's, that's yeah. what I'm getting at. 
The Missouri Supreme Court met in mid-December to hear Celia's appeal and upheld the conviction and sentence. No matter how her attorneys felt about her case, they had no recourse. Wait, how did she get back? I don't remember. How was she recaptured? They, they don't really know. Oh, okay. All right. She, she just, just came back at some just, point. Okay. Gotcha. Um, no one tried to break Celia out of jail this second time around. Celia was interviewed again on the night before her execution, and she recounted the same story. On December 21st at 2.30 p.m., Celia was marched to the gallows and hanged. Why did the Supreme Court uphold her sentence? Well, the easiest answer is she was a slave and she killed her master. They didn't need more reason than that. And to think that Celia would have gotten a fair shake is, is pretty fanciful, that this would actually you know, be a possibility. But we also need to understand the intense upheaval taking place in the region in the mid-1850s. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, which left Kansas's status as slave or free up to the voters, had created the conflict that became known as Bleeding Kansas. Every day, newspapers were filled with rumors that anti-slavery forces might be moving into Missouri from Kansas, seeking to incite slave uprisings and free slaves. In fact, in early December 1855, probably right around the same time that Celia was being brought back to jail from her escape and was awaiting that appeals decision, the Wakarusa War, a small skirmish in the long, bleeding Kansas War, took place near Lawrence, Kansas. A small army of pro-slavery Missourians... Missourians? (laughs) invaded Kansas after a pro-slavery settler killed an anti-slavery man and was then arrested for the crime. Fears about slave insurrection were at an all-time high. If the court was to allow Celia to go free after murdering her master, that would set a very dangerous precedent at a very dangerous time. Yeah. Um, And something I I noticed that we didn't cover was this idea that rape couldn't happen because she was property right right so the idea of uh can, can you explain that a little more i know there's there, there there was this this element of trespassing mm. right that you couldn't trespass on your own property right yeah and and i think i mentioned at one point that there was no such thing in the law as rape of a mm-hmm. black woman even a free black woman there was no mm-hmm. such thing as rape okay um and so to argue even to make the argument that the rape was an excuse for the murder was intensely dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Because it was acknowledging that what a master did to an enslaved woman was rape. Right. Okay, so, and we can cut this if, if I'm wrong, but I, I remember McLaren talking about that during this period, I guess under Missouri law, rape of... I guess essentially a white woman mm. would would actually be an act of trespassing because mm. it was it was actually a crime against either her husband the other man or her father yes. right whoever quote unquote owned her yes. at the time and so therefore under that kind of idea then there couldn't be any you couldn't trespass on your own property right 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 right, right. right. and there's I mean that would make sense because there's no such thing as marital rape right. Right, because right, right. you have free and, and open access to your wife's body. And that, that was true. It was true in New York State until the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Which is mind blowing. It is and it isn't. So, yeah. So I just remember that was yes. that being um, kind of part of uh, of his argument, mm-hmm. McLaurin's argument in this. All right. Well, on that sort of depressing note, mm, yeah. <laughs> we're going to end it there for today. I don't know as if there's much that we can really add to this. Sure. Super sad story. Except to say 
that everyone should go to their local library or to their local independent bookstore mm-hmm. or to the giant behemoth online bookstores and buy Melton McLaurin Celia Slave. Yeah. And read it as soon as possible. I feel like I have a lot of vocal fry happening right now. Right. You can now. suck it if you don't like it. <laughs> oh my God. So show notes and transcripts are available on digpodcast.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And we just recently started a super secret tree fort um, Facebook group for all of our listeners to join. And, you know, you will get sort of some exclusive pictures and interactions with us. Sure. We really like to... Meet our listeners and learn a little bit about you and what kinds of, you know, things that you're interested in and talk more about episodes. So join us there as well. And that's uh, Dig History Pod. What is it called? What's Pod Squad? Squad. Pod Squad. Dig History Pod Squad. Yeah. On Facebook. All right. Well, see ya. Thanks for listening. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig. Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. This series. Nope. See? See what happens? Okay. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. Rubber baby bubby bumpers. Rubber baby buggy The human torch was denied a bank loan. (laughs) Oh, go f yourself. (laughs) I'm still going to say concubinage. Fine. I'm going to say it. Concubinage. Like being right is all. Uh, We know had created the conflict that became known as Bleeding can- Canvas. <laughs> it's Bleeding Canvas. You guys are all staring at me. It's freaking me out. Because we're all hungry. <clears throat> I'm hungry, too. I'm hungry, too. <laughs> they had a conflict, and Celia Keel. Celia Keel. <laughs> <laughs> they had a conflict, and Celia killed. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> what happening? Because I have to say Celia, and then killed. <laughs> James and I once had this really big fight over whether or not it was pronounced glaucoma. We had this huge fight over how to pronounce glaucoma, and I believe it's glaucoma, and he believes it's glaucoma. And so he went onto his phone and just kept hitting the button on the YouTube pronounce that says glaucoma, glaucoma, glaucoma. It's glaucoma. He. Set still insists that it's glaucoma. Was it a real fight or, or a fake fight? <laughs> it was an in-between fight. <laughs> that's, the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that like spirals in our Exactly. House. <laughs> yeah. You start out, you're like, oh, haha, it's yeah. glaucoma. And then it ends with like, I'm going to fucking murder you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>